Welcome to The Trauma Tales, a production of Third Star Media and Shanna White Psychology. This podcast deals with some pretty heavy topics, including domestic violence, substance abuse, mental illness, crimes against children, self-harm, sexual abuse, multi-generational trauma and suicide. If you don't think that you're in the right headspace to deal with any of these topics right now, please cut yourself some slack, take a deep breath and come back another day. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and the elders in all the lands on which we work and meet. I appreciate the significant place Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders hold and I identify them as the first Australians. I value and celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, culture and future and am committed to supporting reconciliation through speaking the truth, pursuing justice and creating opportunities to heal together. Trauma. It's a word that you've probably heard thrown around quite a bit. But what is trauma, really? My name is Shanna White, but you can call me Shan. I'm a psychologist, and defining trauma is a pretty big part of my day-to-day life. But my job goes beyond providing a dictionary description of what trauma is, because that's just the tip of the iceberg, as they say. No, my job is to define trauma and highlight its impacts and, most importantly, to help those who live through trauma to figure out how to thrive beyond it. I've spent years working with children, adolescents and adults. I try to guide them through the process of recovering from complex trauma. Needless to say, I've seen and heard a lot. And now, you will too. Today we have Margaret joining us. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, Margaret. Thanks for having me. And as an aside, if you hear some random little noises, um, my little Jack Russell, Freddie Mercury, has also decided to join us. He likes, uh, he's a self-appointed therapy dog. He has no training. He just likes to give people cuddles, especially when they're feeling a little bit stressed. Um, So he's coming today to join us. So Margaret, tell me a little bit about uh, the period in your life where you experienced trauma? Um, I think for me, trauma began at a very young age. Um, My mother wasn't there for me and uh, she wasn't part of my life due to her own trauma Mm -hmm. in life um, where she was um, sexually abused as a child Uh, which led to me being conceived Um, and she was involved in drugs and prostitution so she wasn't able to care for me. Um, So she gave me up to the state uh, and the state looked after me. When you were a tiny baby? Uh, When I was five years old, um, when my grandmother died and she no longer could be a sort of mother figure for me. Oh, I see. So yeah. So you, your your mother's mother would help with you. She pretty she's... yeah. My grandmother pretty much raised us to the best of her abilities. She had her own trauma, um, 
very similar to my mother um, and she did the best to look after myself and my cousins, um, yeah, to the best of her abilities. So you said us. I just picked up you said she raised us. So. Yeah, my cousins. So my mum's sister's children mm-hmm. and um, other cousins from uh, like first cousin children mm-hmm. where their mothers had passed away or they were not there um, and us. So there was about six of us and um, she would look after us Okay. or she'll try and look after us. <laughs> So how old were you when you found out that you were the product of sexual assault? Um, I was about 15 or 16 Wow, how did that land? Um, I found information. Um, so I'm adopted and I, when I came to Australia to an Australian family, they, part of the international adoption, they found a lot of information about my history and my past um, as part of that process. So there was documentation um, that was lodged by my mum to the courts um, about my life and how I came about to be adopted. And and you, so you would sort of, given this history at 15? Well, I wasn't given the evidence at 15. Um, It was at 14, 15 when I realised how old my mother had been when I was born, Mm -hmm. which was she was 14 years old, that it came into my forehead that... um, Maybe that's why I didn't know much about my father and much about um, her period of pregnancy with me and stuff because mm. she never talked about it, So you, even as a little baby. So you knew your mum? Yeah, before, I knew my obviously. birth mum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she came and went in and out of my life. Um And she visited me in the orphanage where I grew up um, a few times. Yeah. So you went into the orphanage when you were five? Yeah, when my grandmother died. With your younger brother? No, just me. Just you? Yeah. Um, My brother went to another orphanage. You were separated? Um, No, we weren't separated. He was... um, I never knew that I had a brother. Um until the age of about seven or eight. Um, So it's possible that one of their children that my grandmother said was my cousin, could have been my brother, but I'm not sure. So how did you find out that he was your brother? Um, So I asked my mum if I had any siblings during one of her visits and that's when she eventually told me I had a brother and a, and that he might be around in another orphanage. But she hadn't seen him for a very long time. And then how did you connect with your brother? 
I told the nun, one of the nuns that I um, became very close to, who was like a mum for me. Um, Madre had said this and she helped me um, go and find him. Yeah. And when you found him, that must have been surreal. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, How old was he? He, he was seven or eight. So he's eight years younger than me. Um, so and um, Madre Mercedes and I went to maybe twenty five orphanages in Chile, in in our area looking for him, um, and we found him in a orphanage run by um, Germans. Um, it was funded and run by German priests and nuns. Um, and he was there. And he was a baby? He was um, not even uh, three years old. He was yeah. alive? Close to three years old. And then what happened? Um, then I would visit him when... Madre Mercedes would take me and then about six months, maybe a little bit longer, I found out that um, he was being adopted to a family in Australia and um, the orphanage told them, those people, that, oh, he has a sister um, and there's a Chilean law that you can't separate nine siblings. So my parents had to decide to adopt all, both of us or none of us. And that's when they decided to adopt me as well. Um, and I was 10 years old. Wow. So at 10, you, you would have remembered that coming over and, and Yeah, that I remember process. all of that, yeah. How, how was that? Um... It was full-on experience. I didn't speak a word of English. Um, I knew my adoptive father okay. He had spent about three and a half months with, with me in Chile and my brother. And for about the last month before we flew out, he, the orphanage allowed him to take us out of our individual orphanages. So we spent a month in a hotel um, getting to know each other and all of that. And my mum came for about a week during this three and a half month process. Um, and then we came to Australia, we arrived in Australia on the um, 19th of December, just before Christmas. Um, my dad taught himself Spanish, uh, but he spoke fluent French, so that really helped him. Um, my mum didn't speak any Spanish, 
So my dad was pretty much the translator. Mm -hmm. And it took us about six months to learn very basic things like thank you and hello and where the toilet is and I'm hungry. But it took us about a year to learn fluently English. Uh, my brother learned it quicker, much quicker, because he was only four years old by this stage. Um, Do you still speak Spanish? Yeah, I still speak Spanish. I've often had people who can uh, <clears throat> English is a second language have said to me that um, sometimes they will translate their, their thoughts are automatically in their first language. Um, I think t till when I was about 15 or 16, it was definitely everything I would process in Spanish and then translate it in my head into English. Mm. Um, but after 16, 17, um, English became the prominent force in my brain. Yeah. Um, so then I've always thought in, in English However, there are many words or sentences in English which I don't understand um, because I'm not a native speaker. So sometimes I have to think, oh, what does that actually mean? But it's not that I convert back to Spanish. It's just that my brain has to uh, have a process of thinking of what that actually means. Right. Um, I they say the day you stop dreaming in your native language is the day that your language is no longer dominant. And that happened when I was about 20, 21, okay. where I, I no longer could dream in Spanish. Wow. Um, and that means that the brain completely swapped and English was the, the main um, source of um, language, so comprehension, speaking. Everything was then processed only in English. There's so many layers to, to the, like, there's traumas that you're talking about, like the capital T, and then there's tra traumas as well with like a little t. Even things like having to learn a new language as a, as a child and having those that duality in your brain, that's fascinating. So how... How did this impact on you? What, how did it affect your life? Um, well, I think that my journey has made me who I am today. Mm -hmm. um, I don't... I don't trust people easily, um, which would make sense. <laughs> um, no, that's that's a fair call. <laughs> I've got um, very very high expectations of myself, um, which is often, I think, to my detriment rather than for the good um, because I don't trust people easily 
It means that the people that I do trust um, are heavily invested in them and I'm extremely loyal to them mm. um, more than probably the average person is. Um, and I see them as my sense of family, um, which is great, but it also um, causes headaches and pain at times because I'm unofficially impose an expectation on the individual that they might not be able to fulfill. Um, but that I give without question. So that makes it hard mm. um, in that sense. Okay. Especially, yeah, if they don't, if they're not aware of the reciprocity or lack of reciprocity. Yeah, well, also I think, you know, when people become friends with people, you become friends. And for me, a lot of my friends, I think of them as family. Mm. So, but that's not uh, universal. There's some people who will always see you as friend and you're very much not family. Um, so just, you know, trying to balance that and what that means. And um, not to see that as a flaw in me or a rejection in me. But that's actually very natural process. So like a um, different context almost. Yeah. So they've got a different context. Of friendship. Of friendship than you're holding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that expectation okay. of, you know, I'm 100% loyal and generous and I'll drop everything for them. I always thought, oh, well, that should be reciprocated, but I've learned over the years that actually that isn't necessarily the case and that you can't expect that from anyone, um, even if you do classify them as your own family. Mm. Um, I guess I think some distorted view in my head, I thought, since I picked those family members in my head as being part of my family, then they would be less likely to um, reject me or abandon me or hurt me than my own family has done. Mm. Like that's both families, my adoptive family and my birth family. So I think for some annoying reason in my head I thought if I choose the people then that's not going to happen but actually that's a very um, distorted thinking because human beings will do it no matter what irrelevant of who they are mm. so that's been a learning curve in life so I'm really curious about if it's okay to ask about your, because you work in community services in the mental health profession. So how do you think, or if you have thought about how your own experiences impact your 
ability to do your job, your empathy, compassion, your understanding of working with people? Um, I never got into the area of, um, you know, mental health, social work, community work, because I thought that somehow my own trauma would help another individual. It sort of came out of a fluke where um, I couldn't get into what I wanted to do. And one of my friends said, oh, you love helping people. You should do this. And that's sort of how I got into the social work field. Once I started working in the social work field, I realised that while I um, people's individual experiences were not like mine, there was a common thread in that some of the traumas they were experiencing I had experienced firsthand and I had to be very cautious that I didn't project any of my own trauma or experience into those individuals when I was working with them and allow their own trauma be whatever it was that they wanted it to be, you know, for them to process at their own time. But I remembered that I was able to say things and respond in a manner which might have been more in line with what they needed than individuals who've never experienced those traumas. Mm. And in that sense, I felt that I was able to be more in sync with what they might be feeling but not necessarily say that it was identical. Yeah. So really um, hold that space for them. Yeah, but then people who might not have any idea what those traumas look like mm. or feel. So in that th- sense. Yeah, I think you raise a really, really important point, which is that as humans, we really struggle with some – we're so uncomfortable with someone else's pain. Like – when someone passes away, we we come out with all these really trite and, you know, overused little cliches that they don't actually help anyone at all. And we always tend to do, well, not always and not everybody, but we tend to do that a lot in a space where we're uncomfortable so we just keep sort of talking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People do that and, um, and I think that's what I mean. Like when people talk about those traumas, um, I've never been uncomfortable. Mm. I've never heard any client tell me something that has made me ever uncomfortable to talk about. Um, and whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, I think that there is, I would say the, the majority of humans are not able to do that. They're no, not comfortable. And even the ones who've experienced trauma, and I've met lots of people in the field, like myself, working or clients, they're not even able to be comfortable in that space either. Um, And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that they haven't processed their own trauma. Yeah. um, Yeah, I think that's To allow them to do that. Um, But yeah, I've never, I've never felt uncomfortable. Um, 
which would make other people uncomfortable. I, I can give you an example. Um, in my years, I've interviewed and uh, uh, lots of uh, pedophiles or um, individuals who have a interest in um, children um, of in a either in a in a sexual nature, mm-hmm. um, but might not be classified as pedophiles as such. But that's you know, that is their interest. Um, and I've had a lot of those interviews where um, I've gone with other colleagues and I've done the interviews. And when I've completed the interview and gone in the car with the colleague, my colleagues have actually said, wow, you, you, um, you were in there as if you were one of them, but you're not. But you could empathise and become one of them in order to make them comfortable so they would talk mm. without judgement. But you made me so uncomfortable and pretty much I felt sick. And I said, yeah, that's the whole point. Um, and they would go, oh, that would really, you know, fuck you up and I go no if I was like you where you don't engage in the matter then I would be fucked up because I wouldn't feel like I was doing my job it almost sounds like and I totally get that I do exactly the same thing if I'm going into a space where I know I'm going to have to deal with something funnily enough similar sort of situation where I'm trying to work with someone who has a history or is um, engaging in inappropriate sexualized behaviors towards children you know, people do ask me, oh, how do you deal with that? You, you sort of, it's almost like you you switch the, the personal part of your brain off and you, you, you turn into, it's like masking. You, you put a mask on, you go, this is my job and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. My goal here is to, to get to this space. Because walking in and going, you're a deplorable human being and I hate you is not actually going to get the result that you want no you're not going to move anyone forward particularly them and really the the goal is to actually try and process and, and work towards that behavior not occurring anymore so telling them that, that you hate them and that they're disgusting is never gonna sort of get anywhere so the ability to do that and I find it really interesting that you use that example for um it's like yeah it's like masking you you go in you use the mask that you need to in the space that you need to it's like you know you go in and put your professional hat on it's yep. similar sort of thing you read the room and do what you have to in the space one of the things i've I, i've learned over the years from talking to so many people um and one of the the skills almost that comes out of uh experiencing trauma is often that ability to do that really quickly because it's a it's a very protective mechanism to be able to to switch that part of your brain off where you're not really real you're just doing something almost to dissociate so that's that's really interesting so just briefly lastly while I've still got you what are some of the things that you do to to cope and to process and to move forward what works what doesn't um well during my teenage years my adoptive parents tried to engage me with you know psychologists and psychiatrists and I was very against that and I didn't engage with those professionals at all um I found that when I initially met them 
and I was a pretty, and I am still a very stubborn and strong-headed individual, um, I would ask them a simple question like, um, have you ever had to experience um, not not having any food for a few days? And they would say no. And then I would say, oh, have you ever had to learn another language? Or they'd say no. And I'd go, oh, well, you really can't help me. And I'd walk out the room. Um, but in my mid-20s, um, when I had, I guess, my first introduction to mental health as an individual, um, I decided to give those individuals a go, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and they did help me for the time that I needed them mm -hmm. uh, to process the things that I needed to process. I love reading, exercising, um, talking to friends, chilling out, there's you practice a lot of mindfulness. Yeah, I do in, a lot of mindfulness. Yeah, I do lots of mindfulness and meditation. Um, and in my teenage years, I used to play a lot of sport, um, state level, and um, I used to paint, um, do abstract painting, and that helped a lot, I think. Um, so yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story and, and what you've done that's worked for you. I think it's really helpful for people to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining me for The Trauma Tales. A new episode will be released every fortnight and they will cover all areas and topics where trauma has occurred. I'm really looking forward to sharing these with you. If you'd like to follow our social pages, the links are in the show notes. Let us know what you think. If this episode of The Trauma Tales has impacted on you, please contact one of the following resources. Lifeline, Kids Helpline, 1-800-RESPECT, Men's Helpline. The contact details for each of these are in the show notes. Or if you would like to contact us to share your story on our podcast, or if you want to sponsor our show, please email us at thetraumatales, all lowercase, all one word, at gmail.com.